All right. Hello. Uh, welcome to Zeno Chat, a podcast dedicated to uh, Xenogear, Xenosaga, and Xenoblade and beyond. Um, I am the host, Tyler. With me today is my co-host, Justin. How's it going, everybody? All right. And return. Hello. Oh, <laughs> and the- as you heard just there is our returning guest from the Xenogears episode, Kat. Hello. <laughs> Thank you for coming back. You're welcome. All right, and today we also have a brand new guest, and that is Morgan. Well, thank you for coming. Um, so I don't know if you're too familiar with the show too much, but uh, so the way it starts out, we're going to kind of go over some Monosoft related news, um, and then and then if you'd like to afterwards, Morgan, uh, kind of go over your um, like experience with the Zeno series. Um, and then after that, we'll go into the topic at hand, which today's theme is Best Girl Melia from Xenoblade 1. <laughs> um, but yeah, we'll start with the news. Um, let's see. Um, I know they announced a an official art book for Xenoblade Chronicles 2, which was supposed to come out February 2nd, but it got delayed to February 12th due to the high demand. Uh, is anybody... Yes. Yeah, is anybody... Isn't he? Yeah. I mean, that's really awesome. I mean, it kind of sucks, but at the same time, it's awesome that there was so much demand for it. Yeah, I uh, I was lucky enough to be on break when they announced it, so I ordered it on Amazon JP. Oh, nice. Yes, so I should be one of the lucky ones. <laughs> that's good. I wonder if um, the, the delays are affecting people who ordered it. Is it just like the next batch, or is it all orders right now. I think it's all orders because I also got an email saying that it would be delayed. Okay. Okay. Like, yeah, that's great that there's a lot of demand because, I don't know, I'm kind of uh, bugging certain companies on Twitter <laughs> to, you know, bring that overseas to some people that live in other countries. Hint, hint. Have you gotten <laughs> any response so far aside from Dark Horse? Only Dark Horse so far. And, um, it, it looks like that response got, like, a lot of hit. Like, people were retweeting it like crazy. Cool. Because, yeah, I want that to not stay in Japan because we never get those art books. Thank and you. I that think was, like, this is just money on the table right here. Like, yeah. Was, it will yeah, sell. There was a, 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 I don't know if you're familiar with it. There was, like, a Xenosaga 3 book that they released, like, years and years ago after Xenosaga 3 yeah. came out that was really like extensive with the war and everything and it was never going to come out in the u.s but it just kind of shows how much the xeno like brand has grown ever since nintendo has undertaken it and bought monolith soft right and right now we're at a point where a xeno is more known than it's ever mm-hmm. been i mean blade 2 sold pretty darn well yeah and you know we were saying that blade one was selling pretty good and then x i think did okay but like blade two is really where yeah we're at a point where you can go up to some random joe down the street and say oh have you played a zeno game it's like oh yeah i think i heard about that whereas maybe three four years ago i go up to somebody i say oh yeah you ever played a zeno blade and they'd look at me like i had three heads They're like what are you talking yeah. about zeno blade <laughs> 
Yeah. But yeah, as far as localization of uh, older art books, um, I had a very slim uh, Xenosaga 1 art book that uh, became very rare to find. Like, usually when the U.S. gets uh, localizations of art books, they're very slim and they don't cover mm-hmm. all the material mm-hmm. and everything's cut. So I think um, as far as U.S. art books go, um, we've basically been relying on players' guides like since the 90s right. for, for anything like that. And for for an entire art book to be localized in English, that would be a dream come true. So I hope we get Absolutely, something. especially for this franchise. And to be fair, it has been getting a little bit better. You have certain companies like Udon who have been publishing all sorts of art books, mainly for the Capcom games. Like, there's an Okami art book right now. There's um, there's Phoenix Wright art books. There's multiple Mega Man ones that have been released. And, the- and other companies are also jumping in on this, too. Like, you get the Persona art books and the Fire Emblem Awakening. And, the, and those Ultimania Final Fantasy art books. Yes, the Ultimanias. Uh, those are, by the way, Ultimania art books are really good. I have actually have two copies of the first one because... I bought it, and then as a late Christmas gift, a friend got me a copy of it. (laughs) (laughs) So I actually have two of the first volume. And I also just got volume two of that, which has the PS1 games, and that is also fantastic. And there's a third one coming out later this year, and I'm definitely going to be picking that up. So yeah, if you love Final Fantasy, pick pick this up. And just in general, you want to support those releases to show companies that there is a demand for art books. And I think there really is one. Um, a lot of people do like having the physical media in front of them. Mm-hmm. Yes, I remember do. they had the Hyrule Historia art book a few years ago. That yeah. was, I believe that did pretty well. It 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 did incredibly well. It was like it was a number one bestseller before it released for months. I think, if yeah. I recall. Um, yeah, absolutely. And it, it, that's just, that just goes to show you that there is money to be made off of these things. And I hope that Nintendo is seeing this i hope that they're realizing that yeah there's more people who want these games outside of japan and want this kind of merch outside of japan i don't i might be wrong with this but wasn't there like an old interview um way back in the xenoblade one days where iwata spoke to monolith and they were kind of taken aback by the positive reception that xenoblade got in the west and they're just like yeah we didn't realize that this could be as big as it is I remember that, yeah. Yeah, Iwata yeah. is actually the one who pushed it to want to brand it as a as a Zeno game. Originally, I think it was going to be called something else. I Monado. don't remember. It was Monado, it was called... the beginning yeah. of the world. Yeah, yeah that's that, right. that was it. Okay. Uh, well, let's see. In other news, uh, well, I know the Ellie figure for Zeno Gears came mm-hmm. out. Which, uh, thank you again for suggesting Ami Ami, <laughs> Justin, because yeah, yeah, I sure. ordered it and like less than a week later, I got I got the figure and I was like, holy crap, that was fast. So Ami Ami is a is a decent site, but also don't underestimate Amazon US because mm-hmm. sometimes they get this stuff mm-hmm. too. Like the other day, and by the other day, I mean I think maybe Thursday. I was just browsing Amazon, just randomly, just because I because I had Play Asia, Play Asia open, and I was looking at soundtracks, mm-hmm. and then I was just thinking myself, I'm like, maybe I'll look some of these up on Amazon. 
I go on Amazon. There's a Xenogear soundtrack. Amazon US, Xenogear soundtrack. It's like 30 bucks. And I'm like, yep, I'm buying that. And it just came today. <laughs> nice. Which, uh, which soundtrack was that? Was that the new one or is that Creed? Um, it, I think it was the new one. I think it was Creed. Oh, okay. It was the one that has like that weird cover where it's like orange and there's like the axe and it has like, all yeah. those like weird smoke effects on it. I got confused because Creed is also very orange. As they tend to reuse that same graphic, I've noticed. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it can get really confusing. And then there was the other one that came out on vinyl, uh, like, last year. Oh, yeah, that <clears> one, <throat> yeah. Which I, I did get that one, too. We but, yeah, Amazon US. We get that one, sorry. <laughs> Amazon US, they stock some of this stuff. I think they actually have the Blade soundtracks on there, too. Nice. Oh, sweet. All right. And the... Uh, didn't the uh, Pyra and Mithra figures come out recently too, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe, I think so. or maybe possibly the Mithra one. Okay, but uh, yeah, I know those were um, those figures looked really nice, but the problem was they were also like 200 bucks. A pop yeah, or something like that. yeah that was really expensive. <laughs> something ridiculous. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, wake yeah, me up when there's a Malos figure. <laughs> Yeah, Malice, <laughs> or even like um, Numa. Yes, I would, I would, I would yeah. love to have a figure of her. And uh, they also had the Siren model kit by Kotobuki. Oh yeah, that was amazing. Yeah, which I was very close to buying, but the reason I didn't is because uh, as much as I like Kotobuki kits, I've owned a few of them. They can be a bit of a pain to put together. I did get the scale one, and that like to transform it into a vehicle is such a pain. <laughs> And even just, like, putting it together took me a really long time to do, only for me to knock it off of the oh. table and for it to oh shatter. My. And oh, my. Oh, no. Man. <laughs> yeah. Oof. Yeah. I, yeah, I thought about getting that one day, but uh, I'll, I'll, for some reason, I'll just keep buying Cosmos figures. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh... Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. Though I'm still wondering when they'll release, like, like pictures of the Cosmos RE2 figurine. Yeah. They've been really quiet about I that. Just, I just want there to be a male character figure from Xeno besides Shulk. Oh, we got... Yeah, we got, I agree. I mean, we got Faye now. Yes, that's true. That's true. And he's pretty awesome, even though I've broken his legs, like, two times now. No. <laughs> my yeah. uh, my figure's been at home because uh, we we changed our desk uh, situation to an open floor, uh, or rather an open office floor plan, and uh -huh. I hate it a lot. And I don't have private cube space anymore. I have much less space. I can't put up posters, so I'm, uh -huh. I'm very sad about it. <laughs> so my Faye is still in his coffin. Aww. <laughs> Okay. Oh, well, is there any other news that anyone can think of? No, I can't think of off the top of my head, no. Um, there was a story about, and it might have been, it just included physical copies, but I remember I covered it, um, that uh, Xenoblade 2 surpassed uh, 200,000 uh, units sold in Japan and sold 65,000 uh, around 65,000 units, just below 65,000 units in 2018. 
And so I think they ranked. Wow. I forget what their ranking was for the year in software, but it was it was just outside of the top fifty, I think. Which Dang. Uh, that would put it. So it was it was placed be... right below, um, right below. I think Dragon Ball Fighter Z for the Switch, and it was just above. Wow. I forget what game, but it was it was pretty impressive for a game that's been out for, um, for well over a year. Now. So that would actually put it close to the two million mark, would it? Because oh, that's it, what I would I think. Remember it, I remember it was at around uh, 1.2 by January or February of 2018. Oh, yeah. They... So if it's... Yeah, last year when Nintendo had their quarterly briefing, um, they, they they released their um, their sales numbers. I think it was around, around 1.4 million or 1.5. And so that was around this time last year. And so they're going to update their numbers again within the next couple of weeks and um and so uh that will give us a more up-to-date picture of what the sales numbers are but they're i mean then that would put it at least double what xenoblade chronicles x did um you know it's the first xenoblade game that's really had a chance to do really well worldwide in terms of sales with its release because you know xenoblade one had a very limited release in in the West and wasn't even supposed to be released in the West. And then when Xenoblade Chronicles X came out for the Wii U, um, it was, I mean, the Wii U was a dead system. It was the only game to come out for the holiday season, but it, I think it sold just under a million units. So it was around 800,000 units worldwide. Which wasn't bad, but it was on a dying system. So, you know, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. That, Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely <laughs> the best selling Zeno game, like, out of all the Zeno games. So it's it's really impressive. I mean, even if it not being a Zeno game, it's still really impressive how well it's been doing. Yeah. I mean,. Especially too on a new system. I mean, the Switch is sold really well, but on a new system mm. like like the Switch with a less established RPG genre. I mean, or RPG series. Well, it goes to show what can happen when a game is able to not really have as much of a troubled development cycle, but also the platform holder is able to support it properly mm. and also market it. Like those are all things that previous Zeno games have kind of failed at or have had trouble with. It's always been, oh, yeah, they couldn't finish this part of the game or, oh, they didn't really market it or, oh, this didn't get released in this region. So I think Blade 2 is definitely the first time where a Zeno game has had a legitimate chance yeah. of succeeding. And I think for the most part, it's paid off, at least financially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really yeah, I just... can't. Oh, go on. Oh, I was gonna say it just and it just gives the series even, you know, more of a chance going forward um, with um, sequels. And I hope this is my my hope for a Xenosaga HD remaster collection on Switch. But 
that might be a pipe that dream. That would be so nice. <laughs> that would be nice. Yeah, I join you in this pipe dream. <laughs> uh, I'm still pessimistic, but I, that would be really, really nice. My my hopes are dashed, but if if we got it, I would be over the moon. Oh yeah. Well, last year, Bandai Namco did retrade thus spot also whatever the name of the third game is the also yeah also sparks also sparks Zarathustra. yeah they retrademarked it so i don't know you, you you never know but it it would be a great um you know uh opportunity to capitalize on the six like the xeno brand now is stronger than ever mm. before and mm-hmm. so you have brand new fans of series who've never played you know the older games on the Pia, like original Xenogears and um, Xenoblade, and so um, it would be, I think, a, a really um, great opportunity to introduce those games to a new generation uh-huh. um, who are legitimately seem to be um, legitimately interested. But well, we can we can always hope. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know what? That's a good segue into your history with the Zeno games. So, Morgan, why don't you do us the honors in telling us your story? Okay. Well, it was, wow, this is a long time ago now. Uh, almost 13 <laughs> years ago, um, I was in a GameStop, and I was just looking for an RPG to play. And I found Xenoblade, or, uh, sorry, Xenosaga Episode 1. Um so this is about like July of 2006 and so uh, I played it and uh, fell in love with it I thought it was uh, fantastic and went out uh, right after I beat it, bought the second game um, and then played through that uh, beat that and uh just a couple months later, the third game came out, and so played through the third game, and it became my one of my favorite series of all time. Um, and so uh, that's kind of the beginning of my history with the Zeno uh, series, and then uh, when Blade came out for the Wii, that was <clears throat> really exciting, and I was able to nabbed that at GameStop right before uh, they started price gouging it, <laughs> selling it used when it was really new for like 80 bucks, which they did do. That was crazy. Yep. Yeah, I remember those <laughs> days. What was even worse about that was they started a new line of games called the Vintage Game Line, and it was Xenoblade and Metroid Prime Trilogy. So they actually got new shipments of both of them. They opened them up and then marketed them as used. And if you went onto GameStop's website, the Xenoblade page had all sorts of information about Xeno on it. Like they went all out and just like made it this big thing on the site because they're just like, oh yeah, we got this rare game. Check us out. We're GameStop. We got this rare game you can't find anywhere else. We got the good deals over here. But it's just like, and what, what blows my mind about that is maybe if you if you actually bought Xenoblade like when it was coming out. You went on their, their site, the page for it was just like so bland. There was nothing there. They didn't care about it. It wasn't until a couple months later when the copy started going away, 
where people were, um, I think part of the reason was the Wii U came out that same year. So people bought the Wii U, they were looking for games. And so people were starting to find out about Xenoblade 1 and they're just, they're hearing like, you know, high praise and from people who play this saying, oh man, this is a really good game. Oh, you know, I should probably play this. I got a Wii U. Let me go check, check this game out. And then just like that, you go on eBay, it's like 90 bucks and GameStop's just like, hmm, I'm going to get a piece of that high. So they yeah. do that. And it's so stupid. Yeah. Yeah. I would actually, you know, I don't buy new games opened. I won't buy a game unless it's sealed for new, a new price. Mm-hmm. So, um, I was, I was lucky. I went to my local GameStop and it was sealed, bought it with my birthday money and, nice. um, you know, played through that. And I remember my first impression when I first loaded it up and started through like the opening cutscene. I was like, Wow, this looks worse than a PS2 game. <laughs> like, because like, like you play like Xenoblade Chronicle or Xenosaga Episode Three, and that was like that was that was one of the last PS2 games to come out, and it looks fantastic. Um, it is, even still, still really even still, it looks great. Mm-hmm. Like, I I still think it holds up pretty well. It does. Um, and especially those cutscenes that are like with the in-game engine, it's like sometimes you can't even differentiate between the pre-rendered and the ones that are uh, made with the game's engine. But um, <clears throat> so uh, I played through that Xenoblade One, and I, I I really I really enjoyed it. Um, I think uh, you know. Uh, I felt like it, it. It really it took a lot from Sinnoh Saga, which was kind of cool. I found these little uh, tidbits. I always full. Well, no, that would that this that would start a whole other discussion, <laughs> which we can save for another time. But um, I started writing about games about six years ago. I think it was six years ago. But um, when Xenoblade Chronicles X came out, I got that for review from Nintendo like a month early, which is really cool. And That's so that cool. was like, yeah, so I played through, like, played like 100 hours, like, over the course of that month and reviewed it and got really good feedback for the, the review, actually. Um, people kind of found it and kind of went viral. But, um, <clears throat> and uh, now I run my own media outlet and I came across... Uh, kind of prominent figure i'm not gonna name who stated that you know bandai namco is bringing xenoblade chronicle xenoblade xenosaga god i keep on getting mixed up xenosaga to switch (laughs) and so i reported on that rumor that xenosaga was coming the hd remaster the trilogy was coming to switch and it blew my sight up and um and that was interesting. And then the guy got really mad because it was on a an alleged Patreon only podcast. Whatever. I think that's really stupid. But um, but yeah, it the rumor though reached so far that one of the main producers at Bandai Namco, who works on Tekken, actually like commented on it. You guys oh yeah, probably Her- know. Yeah, Her- Yeah, Harada. Yeah, he actually commented on the rumor. He's like, I have no comment, which just kind of, but, um, you know, I, I, I run a lot of Xeno content on my, um, 
site, but that's kind of my history with the series and kind of really um, Xenosaga especially is um, one of my favorite um, series next to uh, The Legend of Zelda. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, it was really kind of deeply personal to me. So, you know, Xeno games, I think, are fantastic. And I am love Takahashi. And I'm so glad that he got, like, another chance after, you know, Xeno Saga didn't really sell and things weren't looking so great for Monolith Soft. And then Nintendo swoops in, mm-hmm. buys them, and, you know, we are... We're here, uh, which is... You know the best uh, position the the kind of overarching series of games has ever been in. So that's my uh, my my history with kind of the series, how I was introduced to it, and yeah, I'm like a I'm also I'm I'm really kind of a student of philosophy, religion, all this kind of stuff. And so I find that's that's especially why Zero Saga for me is is so uh, I don't know, all the games really, but Zero Saga in particular is really um, uh, resonates uh, so much. <laughs> and the way it they they they're able to to uh, kind of the way it intertwines with all the various themes and whatnot. I don't know. <laughs> so. Okay. And uh, what what was your opinion on Cineplay Chronicles 2? Oh, that's... Uh, it's, I liked it a lot. I loved it. Um, you know, there, there, there are some things like... My only complaint was probably sometimes like Rex was just like so like overly like optimistic which is one thing I love about his character but also like one thing that kind of annoys me like when he says like Malos like the architect like asks him like what are you gonna do like if you like beat him and he's like I punch him and then go have a drink with him and it's just like what he's like killed all these people. Why? Yeah, that seemed a little forced to me too, honestly. <laughs> but um, but I really, I really, I, I really liked to. I think that they did a really good job. I know initially when it was showing off, a lot of people were like fans of of the first game, were kind of a little put off by the anime style, um, the art style. Oh yeah. Um, and I don't game. get why, to be honest. But I think like, it looks cause... great. Yeah, it does. And, you know, I guess I would consider myself one of those Xenoblade fans, if I had to put a label. Um, I saw the anime art style, and my thought was, oh my goodness, they're actually making the characters a lot more expressive this time. This is awesome. That is one thing that 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 style does, and that's why, you know, with with Zelda, um, Legend of Zelda, they did, uh, when uh, they went to the Wind Waker's Toon style, or Toon Shade mm-hmm. style, uh, Cell Shade style. The, one of the reasons why is because it made the characters more expressive. Mm-hmm. They're able to do more in, with it. So, not gonna lie, I was kind of, I was kind of put off by the art style at first, but um, it, it really grew on me 
But as you said, guys said, it's probably the most expressive any Zeno game's really been. Besides, like, Absolutely. yeah, but yeah, especially more expressive than Xenoblade. Yeah, I, I, I've loved um, the new artist from from start to finish. Um, the the uh, the concept art looks great, and the models look great, which uh, they've had trouble with lately, especially with Xenoblade X. So I was really excited to see like anime style models that looked great in three D. Mm. Um, so. That's that's my onion there. <laughs> ah. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was a nice love letter to just the medium as a whole. Because you had a lot of classic manga artists in there um, contributing some work to Xenoblade 2. And, and and that's what made getting the Rare Blades kind of exciting. Because you, you can look at them in a gallery and you can see what artists drew them. And then you can look them up and then check out their other work. I, th- I think also... Uh... Takahashi said in an interview that the various art styles helped the the team immensely because then they could like practice working, creating models using various art styles. So that was a really nice way to go about it too. Yeah, and I know Xenoblade Two got a lot of flack for it because I've seen a lot of people complain online about how it's inconsistent, it doesn't fit. But personally, I, I liked it. <laughs> I think it feels more real than any any other game with a, like a, a set style. It's kind of like mm. um, anime styles have this problem where a lot of them end up same faced, and like even if the face looks good, you start to notice it when people have criticized it. Like there's a lot of critic. Uh, criticism in the media right now at, at least uh among artists with uh in regards to same face drawing and when i was growing up we never used to have that conversation but now that it's an open dialogue i see it everywhere um once i get like used to uh, a series it's just like okay these these character designs are just like the the same same face with different yeah. hair or different colors and xenoblade 2 uh, doesn't really have that problem because there's so many other designers involved. Um, uh, but like, I guess um, the main artist um, is kind of same facey, but uh, not not to the extent um, that that other anime stuff has been. Like, uh, certain artists don't know how to draw like older people. Um, and, uh, it, it's, it's pretty plain that, um, Saito, I think his name, yeah. uh, he, he doesn't, uh, delve into that a whole lot. And like these, these games, like a well-rounded game has characters of every age and like getting the extra artists really padded that out, I think. Yeah, it added a certain sense of variety that you don't often see in many games, especially in an RPG where, it's kind of like typical practice to often get a set of characters and then just kind of copy them over and over again yeah. and just give the illusion of a uh, dense population when it's really just like the same kind of character models being used over and over again. So them being able to have all these different artists working on these different character models, it kind of gave the game a more, it, it gave many of the characters a more distinct and more unique style to them, which yeah, you're right. You don't see that often in video games. You don't see that often in anime. And I guess like for a lot of people, that's very off-putting to them. And Kat, you kind of brought up a good point about how we never used to have this conversation before. And I think that's 
And I think part of the reason why we've never had the conversation before is that it's part of a bigger thing with anime. Anime and just that kind of media in general is more widespread mm. and available today than it ever mm -hmm. has been. In the 90s, we didn't get a whole lot of anime. So it's not like we really knew what tropes were. Whereas today, you know, it's like every other conversation is about tropes. Oh, yeah. they're this trope. Oh, no, he's just this. Oh, we, I've seen this 20 times. So I think that's actually part of a bigger conversation to be had, which we might actually, that'd be a good conversation for the podcast would be tropes and Zeno, but mm, that's a whole yeah, other conversation yeah. for another day. <clears throat> huh? Oh no. What happened? Oh. <gasps> oh god. Oh, you know what? Maybe there's a limit since you're using your oh, phone. Oh, crap. Oh, shoot. Damn. Uh, it's okay. Um, mm. Did it... Uh, it's alright. So it... It's okay. Did, did it, it save any of that, or... Maybe boot it up again and see if it retained anything? Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry, buddy. We're here to work with you. Yeah, that sucks. We yeah. Can, yeah, like, we're all in this together. <laughs> and while you're doing that, I will go read some more Heart to Hearts, since I'm finding some interesting trivia about Melia in them. Ah, uh, I... Yeah, I didn't get done, like, doing any of my research. How about this? Did you? We'll do a little bit of a, did you know gaming Xenoblade? Did you know? Melia's sign is the Rhapsodist. In the heart to heart with Sharla, Sharla reveals that Melia's, that Shulk sign is a pedagogue, and that pedagogue and Rhapsodist are compatible with each other. <laughs> what, what, what even is that? Are those just like the... So, apparently... Oh, you ever heard of digital gaming? No, not not in that particular. No. So it's this uh, they're this channel, and they have all sorts of like videos for random games, and it always starts with this guy who just goes, "Did you know?" And then he just like says random trivia about games. Wow. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Those did you know gaming? Yeah, I really like those. Oh, oh they're all on Twitter oh, all the okay, time. So I do know that. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. Well, let's uh, get on to the main topic at hand uh, today's topic. We're talking about a character from Xenoblade Chronicles One, uh, and that is uh, Melia Antiqua. Yes, Queen. Best girl. Yes. Empress. Empress Melia. Oh. Probably the most tragic character in that game. Yeah. yeah. She, she Yeah, she really is. I mean, gosh, she lost, ugh. I mean, she lost a lot, a lot of people, a lot of people. There's a, there's a joke that her main theme should be the song While I Think, which for those of you who don't remember what song While I Think is, it's that really depressing song that plays whenever like someone dies or something really horrible oh. happens. <laughs> Oh, I'll put that as I'll put that as the ending theme of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Except no one's gonna die. And so, 
And then to top it all off, the guy that she likes, his dead girl, his kind of dead girlfriend comes back to life. Yeah. Yeah. And so she just, and she just, she's kind of graceful about it and just kind of lets go, which is. Yeah, it's, it's very different because not a lot of girls are like that. And it really speaks to her character. Melia, you know what? And I, this is this is something that I a question that that I, I came across from doing some research in the internet. I just googled Melia is best girl, and I was just curious mm-hmm. on what the fan base like had to say with regards to mm-hmm. that. And I saw someone posted that they thought that a lot of fans who were like loved Melia had once Xenoblade. Saga, Xenoblade Chronicles 2 came out, kind of uh, shifted to being fans of Nia, that now Nia is best girl. So yes, because that's the joke, actually. Because um, they're, they're both, they both kind of do that, kind of just accept that it's unrequited and kind of bow out. But what are your thoughts with regards to that? I think it's so, uh, it's really like on the mark, um, gray haired Eponine, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> if you guys are familiar with Les Mis at all, <laughs> crickets. Okay, that's right. No, sorry. Um, <laughs> um, uh, Eponine is a character in uh, the book and the musical Les Miserables, uh, and her her thing is that she is in love with this guy who is in love with the like this other girl and uh her thing is that she sort of lives in her head she has a whole song where she's she's pretending that she's with this guy that will never love her and as soon as i saw when i was playing uh xenoblade one for the first time i saw this sort of start to happen uh to melia and i was like oh no (laughs) no (laughs) because i kind of remember being that girl a little bit in high school and it wasn't fun. <laughs> All right. Yes. Now, um, here's a th- here's the thing with Melia, and I guess like if I was to say, this is what kind of sets her apart from mm-hmm. Mia, uh, is that Melia she one of her biggest flaws as a character is that she isn't really great at expressing herself, in oh, no. much in a very similar way to how Shulk has a lot of trouble expressing himself. And I think that that's kind of one of the things that connects them. And when they speak to each other, they can instantly relate to each other in that sense. Mm-hmm. Whereas Nia was, it seemed like Nia was more, I I felt for Rex more so because we kind of just went through a lot of stuff together. Mm-hmm. And we, we kind of got to know each other. And Rex has been there for me versus, uh, versus Melia and Shulk. It's kind of like, here's this guy who actually gets me and knows my pain and understands it and knows what to say to me. Like one of the, there's one scene where Shulk, well, actually it's not even one scene. It's just like Shulk is actively acting different towards Melia than he is to, than anybody else does towards Melia. At least when you first get introduced to Melia, Uh, I think Melia makes a comment that Shulk was the first like, Palm's boy that she really got into contact with. 
And like from her perspective, Shulk was kind of like the guy that got her to see what life was like being a normal girl, not necessarily being part of nobility. Mm. And I think her father noticed that as well, which is why he straight up tells Shulk, I want you to be her friend. Yeah. And that's, that's important yeah. for, for girls who grow up sheltered. Um, I, I, I grew up kind of sheltered myself. Uh, so I, uh, Melia resonates a lot with me as a character. Um, like n- not, like I'm definitely not a princess or anything, but I, I was brought up to like to the side of other people. I was taught that other people were not going to treat me well, so I had a lot of like barriers between myself and other people as I was growing up. I was afraid to approach new people, um, and like. It was hard to me. It was really hard for me to make friends. Um, mm-hmm. So seeing a female character in a video game, usually uh, other game, other game characters, uh, women in games uh, are usually made for a customer. Usually they they're not like unless it's like a trope or a dating sim where they want to build all these personalities to appeal to whoever's playing the dating game, uh, Melia's particular personality is left out of larger games like this. And like seeing somebody who's in her own head, most of her dialogue is in thought bubbles, um, like along the lines with Squall Leonhardt from uh, Final Fantasy VIII. There really hasn't been... uh, a female character in a JRPG quite like Melia. <laughs> I agree. And yeah. I think that also um, makes Melia a little bit more realistic. Um, that whole idea of having to put your feelings aside for a lot of the game to try and face the bigger picture, which she does on various occasions in both main cutscenes and also side cutscenes that creates um, a character that you don't see often and one that I actually can relate to Melia a lot as well with that, with that whole concept of, you know, you have these feelings for someone and you're not quite sure how to put it in words. Mm-hmm. And Shulk is kind of a similar thing I said before. And I, and I find Shulk really relatable for that too. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I, I always liked that Melia, she, She's constantly at odds with herself in various ways. She's a half Homs, half Hyentia. And there's a part of her that wants to be a normal person. But then there's that part of her that she knows she is next in line to lead the Hyentians. Um, she, she has trouble making friends. She, she says in, um, in one heart to heart, I believe, where the group that was sent to protect her since she was a kid, they were the only friends that she really had. And those people, they die when they first met Melia because they were killed off by a Hyentia. Well, not Hyentia. They were killed off by a Telethia. I mean, I'm not wrong. You're not wrong. But um, if you notice that whenever she refers to those people, um, she often uses their names. Whereas the other Hyentians, they kind of just like, oh, yeah, your bodyguards. Yeah, no big deal. Don't worry about them. But Melia's like, no, I'm going to call them by Oh, yeah, names. she even says that uh, when she returns back to the capital about going to their families. But then the emperor's like, no, no, you don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And if you also notice that when, at least for the first like half of the game, when she was referring to, you know, her parents, she often corrects herself because again, she wants to, she wants to like kind of break away from this, this fate of hers. That's kind of set in stone. Uh, Sorian, I think was her yes. father's name. Yep. Yes. 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 He wants her to be the successor, but, and she wants to do it, you know, partially because like, Hey, she loves her father. Right. But at the same time, she also wants to see, wants to learn what life is like outside of royalty. She wants to be treated like normal because she knows that there's a lot of people in her society that hate her for being a half blood. I mean, that's why she even has and to wear a mask to. That's exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and just to f- further drive that point home, they go as far as to make a duplicate of her, like a fake Melia, just so that she can go ahead and be with Shulk. Because what, what's interesting about, about that is what's interesting about Melia is and how the high NTS see her is that the only people that truly kind of looked out for her personal interests are her father and her brother. Mm-hmm. They they did they seem to be doing everything in their power to help Melia find what she wants, despite the fact that she has this fate, which is why they went they went with that like body double of mm-hmm. hers. <laughs> It's kind of like Queen Amidala in uh, Star Wars, too. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The thing I I really like about Melia um, is, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't fit in with the Hyentia. She doesn't fit in, you know, with the Holmes because she's, I mean, being half of each, she doesn't really fit in with either group. And so Schultz and his group as if that's the first time that you know she's ever given given like a place to um belong because you know right. she feels like completely out of place um you Absolutely. know um f- for her entire life and um and so um i find her you know to be to be extremely um relatable and just realistic because a lot of people you know feel like that like they just feel like they don't fit in and especially you know growing up for me you know that's one of the reasons why um melia resonated so strongly with me and you know her character isn't dependent on her um on her relationship with with the shulk like i really like i was really like rooting for her but like you know like like her relationship with shulk whether or not she has a romantic relationship with him or not that that didn't define her character. There's so much more. She's such a strong character, yeah, uh, and, and strongly written character, and um, and I find that that's very rare in in uh, JRPGs. I I agree 100. percent And I think the game also plays with the players' expectations with this a little bit because uh, as I was rewatching the cutscenes uh, for this, I noticed something. Um, when Shulk rescues F- Melia in the tomb, mm-hmm. when she's going through that trial, mm-hmm. Fiora's theme plays during that. Like that little, like, sappy, like, violin song that played at the very beginning when Shulk right. with Fiora. That actually plays when he's rescuing mm-hmm. Melia. I think it. And I thought that was kind of. So it's like, it's almost as if the game is kind of setting that up as well. Especially with the king saying what he was saying, uh, Sorian. And. Also, there's this one particular line that I think is 
quite frankly, one of the most depressing lines in the entire game. It's uh, as when Shulka's leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, al- is it alcohol? Is that the name of the place? Alco- yeah, alcohol. alcohol. When Sh- when Shulka's leaving, that after you know all said and done, uh, she, her and Shulka kind of have like this awkward conversation, like you know, oh, I'll see you later. Demelia's like, oh, I'll wait for you right here. You better come back. But right after she says that, like her, you see her head tilt downwards. <sighs> Which she does this multiple times, and Charla notices. And when, and what's kind of funny is that after Charla notices, she literally face palms, and then <laughs> she literally face palms, and then goes back and calls Melia out yeah. on it. And <laughs> I wrote this down. She face palms. She calls Melia out on it, and Melia's all like, "No, you know, Shulk and I were not like this." And then she says this line, which I think is one of the most depressing lines in the entire game. She said, Charlotte says, yeah, yeah, but remember, the longer he's away, the more chance his feelings for you will fade. Why are you still here? Listen, I'll keep an eye on Shulk for you. (sighs) Whatever can you mean? That's a risky strategy, letting Shulk go off and just hoping he'll come back to you. Shulk and I are merely... Yeah, yeah. But remember, the longer he's away, the more chance his feelings for you will fade. But... Once we find this Fiora, I will personally whisk him back here in a heartbeat. (laughs) Don't give up! I appreciate it. Great. Don't worry, Melia. I'm on your side. Ooh, ouch. Isn't isn't that not like one of the most sad things you've ever heard? Dang, Charla. Dropping some truth, I guess. But dang. And she also goes on to say that she's on her side, even though... I don't really think Charlotte does a whole lot for her outside of um, a heart-to-heart where she teases Melia by saying that their astrology signs are compatible with each other. Yeah, I mean, it was harsh, but... Sometimes you need to learn harsh truths. Uh, I think um, the thing with Melia, it's it's pretty obvious that she, she was raised... Gently in some ways, mm-hmm. but harshly in others. But I don't think she got the whole, like, Sharla harsh real end from anybody. Mm-hmm. Like, she got the harsh from Yumea, uh, and she got the harsh from, like, being separated from, from her people, essentially. Um, but she, like, she has, uh, in, in her separation from other people, uh, she never learned the street smart. She's very sheltered. Yeah, very. Uh, I think very sheltered. Charla being and the think, opposite of uh, of sheltered. Uh, I think yes. if if they had more time together to uh, to build their characters, uh, it would have been like like I think Charla and Melia are good friends and like mentorship for each other. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's part of. A bigger problem with XC1, and that's um, unfortunately, I felt like Charla didn't get 
as much screen time as she should have received. Charla's story is cut extremely short, and right. I think it, yeah. it seems grotesque in this way because um, it's it's too short of a time between when she loses Godot uh, and when she starts up with Ryan. Like if you <laughs> well, I, like I, ten I, years I, instead of like maybe ten days. <laughs> well, I was kind of when I'm rewatching the game, I was kind of off put. Like when they first meet Charla, she like like, says to Ryan, like, multiple, like, two or three times, like, oh, you're just like Gatto. It's like, oh, no. I was like, oh, gosh, oh, oh yeah. all right, I, I think you're just rebounding. I, I really think you're just rebounding. Yeah. But, but, yeah, it's also kind of interesting when you consider the age difference between Gatto and Ryan. It's like, I think it's like eight years or something like that. Yeah. And uh, Gaddle even calls Ryan kid um, right towards the end before he dies. Oops. <laughs> but yes. Okay. So I actually had a question uh, while uh, rewatching the cutscenes um, in regards mm-hmm. to like the high Entia. Because um, I know that um, Melia is the daughter of uh, Hams, who is the second uh, consort to the Emperor, because they have. Uh, the the two different consorts, one's Hyantia and the other's Ahams. Mm-hmm. Um, but they like mentioned several times how um, how the Hams don't really know too about much about the Hyantia, and they're almost like I wouldn't say mythical, but I I just don't know how they go about like how, if King Ahams. <laughs> yeah, do they acquire Aham? I mean. I don't. I mean, it's probably been a long time since they. Yeah, I it just. I mean, it's yeah. been a long time since Melly. I mean, if Melly is eighty-eight, that means her mom's been dead probably for a while. But I, I'm not. They don't really go into depth. Actually, um, it seems like it's a long time because the way Melia seems to describe her mom, it seems like it's happened a long time ago. Because she does say that she doesn't have too many memories of her mm. mother, but she does have memories of her. Um, I believe eating with her mother. I, I think that was said in a heart-to-heart. And just like the high Entia hierarchy just in general is kind of uh-huh. weird because you have... Because Melia essentially has like two half-siblings. She has a Tyria who is the daughter of Yumea, which is who I guess is was the other wife of um, Melia's father. <laughs> So she got with the Homs to have Tyrea because we find out that Tyrea was also a half and a high a half high entity as well. Then you have Kalian, who was, I believe, I believe Kalian was Yumea. Yes. Yeah, Yumea's son Tyrian. Yeah. Which is kind of weird considering, like later on, there's like that scene where Yumea. No, no, sorry, sorry. I, I'm mixing. I'm mixing Yumea and. Lorentia I did the same thing. I did the same thing. <laughs> I was gonna say there's a scene where like. Lorinthia kisses him, yeah. and when he like transforms, I, I, yeah, I mix those two up all the time. Oh, no, <laughs> but, they're, they're yeah, very it's... similar character, both of them. It's, it's they kind yeah. of draw from the same archetype, so it's easy to confuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's just that Lorinthia's are she's like the same archetype, but to taken to a much higher extreme than Yumea is. But yeah, so you have those three, those three kids, and they all. 
they're like treated like they're not really brother and sister. Melia only really considers Kalyan a brother, whereas Tyria, despite her mother being one of the wives of her father, she doesn't really consider her as much of a sister. But then in the end, she does kind of consider like, oh, you and I were kind of the same. We're both high Antia. But that doesn't happen until much later in the game. And I guess like that plot point isn't as important. I guess the only thing that really comes to that was Melia showing her devotion to the High Antia Empire, that she's going to do whatever it takes to rid the world of the Teletheas and keep everybody safe, even if it means having to take down her own people or what used to be her own people. Yeah, I think, um, Tyler, to come back to your question, uh, I think uh, having been conceived about 88 years ago, uh, and nobody in Colony 9 knows what a Hyantia is, um, but uh, there's other colonies. There's there's Colony 6, which is uh, located much much closer to, like, Machna Woods. Uh, there could have been another, another Homs colony that was destroyed by the Mekon by the time. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, so that's, that's what I always thought. Yeah, there's still a big time gap that things could have... Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, really large time gap. Yeah, I imagine the um, the Mechon invasion uh, had sort of, like, uh, wreaked havoc with Han's populations, too. Because um, that, that's what Takahashi loves to do. He likes to kill people. <laughs> Mostly <laughs> off-screen, but... <laughs> Well, but yeah, I think I, I always think that the most fascinating part about Melia is uh, just the way she's learning about the world and learning to trust others, most importantly, because she kind of she's it's hard for her to open up to people and it's hard for her to trust people because she's she's been brought up being treated a certain way. And then Shul was finally somebody who sees her as an individual he doesn't see her as, oh, she's this high Antian princess. He just sees her, oh, yeah, that's Melia. She's just a nice girl. Yeah. And, and I think that really um, resonated with her. Like, right after Sorian dies, yeah. and Shul pretty much tells her, look, you know, you're Melia Antiqua. You need to, you need, to, you can't let them get away with this. Which, yeah. which the scene with her, her father dying was, I thought was a really powerful scene, because, uh, I mean, Very. like, she kind of bottled up a lot of her emotions, but then right then and there she was crying and the emperor's like, no, don't to cry. And she's like, no, let me cry. And I was like, you, you go girl. Father. Melia, the hope of our people. You must not cry. Don't say that. I don't care how improper it is. Let me cry. Melia. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, that whole sequence is one of one of one of the best in the game. <laughs> it's not a, just so many storytelling levels. It's so powerful. Yeah, that's a good one. And um, there's a similar scene later on, right after you fight Kalyan, and that boss can go die <laughs> off a cliff. <laughs> oh my goodness! Ring out like. What was that? It's a ring out. Yeah. That boss was such a pain. It, it, like, I think if, if Blade 1 had a flaw with its combat, it was highlighted in that boss because the AI did nothing but jump into the ether, at least when I played it. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, I but, anyways. That. 
Anyways, at the end of that cutscene, um, Colleen has some final words for Melia that presumably none of the other characters heard. But Ricky makes a comment about how he didn't hear it, but he felt it. And Melia kind of has this moment where she's just like taken aback and she hugs mm-hmm. Ricky. And I think that was that's another instance of Melia learning that she can rely on her friends and that her friends want to be there for her because Ricky's saying, you know, he feels he, he I think Ricky said like, oh, he feels the old birdies words or something like that. And Melia in, in Melia just has this moment where she's just like, oh, my God, like these people are here for me. They're going to be the people that help me do what I want to like, do. I liked her relationship with Ricky because he uh, it was very wholesome because there are several times because. Yeah, because I mean, he he's technically I mean, he is a father, um, but there are like a, I, I remember there was one time where he like said how, like he was proud of her and like that was just a heartwarming scene. Was, I really like their relationship. Yeah. Yeah, they have a lot of scenes where um, Melia will make a comment about how cuddly Ricky is and how much she likes to, <laughs> to poke him or <laughs> shake him. I think that was actually said in a heart to heart. Uh, yeah, I think that uh, Ricky might actually be one of the characters she's closest with outside mm-hmm. of Sulk. Also, Fiora, funny enough. Um, her and Fiora, she learns to really like Fiora. And I think that goes into how interesting the unrequited love is with her because she, like, she shouldn't like right. Fiora. She has these deep feelings for mm-hmm. Shulk. And she knows damn well that Shulk has his sights on Fiora more so than he does on Melia. But yet Melia, she should be jealous. And I think it's even hinted that she is jealous in various ways. But she isn't afraid to look at the situation objectively. Like when she first meets Fiora, after Shulk rescues Fiora and, you know, Fiora's back to quote-unquote normal, um, she says, is that your childhood friend? Congratulations. And I think that's such a great line that shows that um, she can really put aside that kind of irrational feelings that mm-hmm. she has to really appreciate the fact that something great happened to Shulk right now and that she should be happy for both of them. And not many people can do that. Mm. Regardless of Is this another reason why Melia is best friend? <laughs> Yes. Yeah, there's so many scenes that are like that with Melia. And, and like, I played Xenoblade Chronicles 1 at a time where I had a lot of really, um, I had a lot of tough things going on for me. And seeing a character like Melia uh, was really motivating to me. Shulk as well. And uh, um, I just, I love seeing Melia. And I love seeing her take on all these horrible situations and being able to keep face through them. And she keeps on persevering with it. She's a fighter. She's not afraid to put her emotions aside, mm. but not completely ignore exactly. them either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And besides being like the empress of the High Entia, it's she's also kind of represents the the future of the race itself because of how, I mean, the reason why they have a Homs. Uh, consort is to try to integrate with the Homs in order to avoid being, t- you know, turned into Telethia. Telethia. Yes. 
Yeah, the curse. Yeah, I, I remember when she went into that the trial, it said the integration with the Hollows was like at 80% or something because, uh, I mean, yeah, something mm-hmm. like that. So was, she represents a whole lot, even though I don't, she didn't fully grasp how important she really was for the future of the, her race. Also, on a side note, from that same mm-hmm. scene, uh, I noticed a block of text that was kind of interesting where they say, um, that 2,512 cycles have passed since the last person to do the trial. Yeah. So I know that the Zeno games, they kind of have their own concept of mm-hmm. time. But I think that's kind of interesting to think about, considering that the high Hyantians are known to live for a very, very long mm-hmm. time. That it's been that long since they've had someone had to do that trial or somebody's been there. I, I think that's what it's supposed yeah. to be. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're given no real like time timeline from when Klaus pushed the button until uh, the events of Xenoblade One take place. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think at the very least, if you gauge um, uh, the the Mechon people's ages, their their lives are in the ten thousands, and they still don't know what all happened. So that's like like I, I'd say at least double or triple that time span between bang yeah it, yeah i mean yeah it makes me it reminds it makes me think of the scene in xenoblade uh chronicles 2 where claus explains like how like he made like or wait well spoilers um <laughs> how for Xenoblade 2 how he made like the world and um and whatnot and um in um you know Xenoblade 2 I would imagine he would have undertaken like a similar series of like it would have I think they he gave like a time frame um for it but I mean um the world of Mechonis and Bionis is very old, I assume. Yeah, and I think that it, it's definitely a long period of time considering the High Entias in general. Yeah. Because who knows when the first High Entia were born. And also we have the Telethia, so um, that we already have Telethia just roaming around in general, so we already know that there's been several, probably multiple periods of time where there was an overflow of ether in the bio, within the Bionis. Yeah, I also kind of think that the Telethia and uh, the Napon and the Hyantia share a common ancestor because they've all got head wings. Yeah, and they're also pretty friendly with each other. Yeah, so. they are. So... So it's just like they're different offshoots of the same. Hmm. Yeah, like, Here's a theory. Here's a game theory. <laughs> what if Choo Choo gave birth? Ah. Oh my god. Choo Choo. <laughs> Can I say fuck on this podcast? Yeah, yeah. At, least, at least five times. Okay. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's um that is something that might have some weight, you know. The no pawn and the high entia 
they might have some similar origins at the very mm-hmm. least because both um, both of their colonies are really close to each other. And they all, both seem to be on kind of friendly terms with each other. So I think they have some history for sure. Is the real Xeno mystery that I want? No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> we need answers. Yes. No. <laughs> But yeah, um, so what are what about some other characters we could talk about with Melia, or at least her relationship with other characters? You completely cut off. I didn't hear what you said. I was saying uh, we should talk about Melia's relationship with other characters. Because, ah, yes. I mean, obviously you have Shulk, uh-huh. right? There's a lot you can say about them, which we, we covered some of that. And then Ricky. And um, Fiora, about how she should be jealous of Fiora, but she kind of learns to get along with Fiora. And Fiora has that one scene with her where she tells Melia... That if something happens to her, she wants Melia to look after Shulk. I, I I didn't do any research, but that that definitely is telling. Um, and I really like that the two of them can coexist without being like Catfight City. Um, uh, I I think we we haven't touched on uh, Melia and Ryan or Melia and mm-hmm. um, Dunban. Sure. See what I can't. I I unfortunately didn't finish my uh, watch through, but how I know with Ryan, she uh, their relationship was really um, he's a fool, like he's usually a fool. And he's just going, running his mouth when he shouldn't, and she's just not not having it. Maybe because they're so different in personalities, you so know. And that here. that makes sense too, from the standpoint of like Melia and just the way like you know she was mm-hmm. raised. Like she's very proper and whatnot. Ryan is the yeah, he's completely opposite. So it's just natural that she's gonna kind of like look down at him as kind of the idiot in the group, which. In some cases, might be the case. Some cases, might not be. Yeah, if I remember, well, yes. the thing with that, and I think unfortunately, um, Xenoblade Xenoblade One is filled with subtleties. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things that aren't necessarily explained in the main cutscenes, but are in side cutscenes. Uh, Melia and Ryan's relationship, in some of the heart to hearts, it kind of tells a different story, where mm-hmm. Melia actually does appreciate mm-hmm. Ryan. And appreciates the way he is for Shulk. And in some ways, even going as far as to say that, Ryan was actually the one who helped cheer her up on various occasions because of the way Ryan is. So it's like, so it's kind of interesting that, uh, yeah, you have the cutscenes where she's often like telling Ryan <laughs> off, but at the same time, in the hearts of hearts, she shows that she's actually really appreciative of Ryan. And in some cases, even dirt. So, Certain dialogue choices even impressed by some of the things that Ryan mm-hmm. does know. And I think, unfortunately, uh, for Ryan, a lot of Ryan's qualities aren't seen till much later. He does kind of, he is kind of just like the goofball, and that's kind of how the game portrays him for a large amount of it. But he does have some dependable oh, yeah. qualities, and again, those aren't seen till much later. And I guess, like, another thing that I don't like about Xenoblade 1 is that many of the heart to hearts, aren't available for the longest oh, yeah. time. 
Yeah. There's some of uh, there's so many that I still haven't come yeah, to. Yeah, exactly. Because it's and, it's just, it's really difficult. And the messed up part is that those some of those hearts hearts have like some really really good lore information in there. There's like some there's character development in there that you wouldn't have otherwise seen. And I think this is part of it. Like there's this whole like dynamic between her and Ryan. And I'm I'm looking at some of the hearts of hearts between her and Ryan and there are some dialogue branches where they kind of play off of how snarky they can be towards each other. Because Melia has a snarky side to her. She can be very sassy at times. <laughs> and Ryan can also be the same way. And it's interesting how that, I think they can kind of connect to each other on that level as well. Yeah, I think it's really important, like, for, for like, I think Melia and Ryan's story, when I, when I think of it, I, mm-hmm. it makes me think of how important it is to diversify your company. Like, if you are, if you're reserved and you only surround yourself with reserved people, you don't really grow. Mm-hmm. But if you, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, branch out and, like, reach out to people, even though you're not like them, then, then it really helps you progress as a person because you get that different perspective. And I think that is a very like meta Xeno series thing. And that's what I think one of the 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 strongest um, aspects of of Xenoblade uh, One compared to all the other Xeno games is is the group the group dynamics of the of the cast of characters you play as. Um, and the way they interact with one another, because like I, I I can't help but feeling even now like I didn't get to watch any of the cutscenes, but comparing you know the um the cast of Xenoblade one to Xenoblade two, um you know I I, I like them both a lot, but the way the way they they interact in Xenoblade one um it it makes it I feel like the the um, your party is. I feel like it's a stronger party than say than Xenoblade Two, where they focus more on the relationship between <clears throat> the um, between drivers and blades, and um, except for you know uh, some characters, some characters don't really interact in Xenoblade Two as much as say Xenoblade One, where everybody is has their moments together yeah i think it's easier with a smaller cast to get that kind of cohesion uh with uh, xenoblade 2 is a much bigger cast even though there are only like five drivers they've got like yeah hundreds of blades and like at least 20 voiced ones so that 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 falls apart a lot easier than just seven yeah no <laughs> but yeah good point um so I, I can't really remember too much, but what how would you kind of describe the relationship between Melia and Dan, Dunban? Again, kind of like with Ryan, um, I think that the heart-to-hearts explore that a lot more. Uh-huh. Because Dunban does actually open up to Melia quite a bit. And he tells her about his story with Mumkar. And Melia kind of learns to empathize with Dunban and understand why Dunban is kind of the way he is. Because Dunban, I think, is an interesting character in in himself. He should probably get his own episode. Yeah, um, yeah. 
I, I actually really like Dunban. And yeah, so Dunban has always been kind of like the voice of reason, but he has a side of him that is really just almost as irrational as Ryan at times. He's just a hothead. He even says it too, that he used to be, he used to be a hothead. He used to not really think and just kind of slash first thing. Oh second. yeah. Cause yeah, I remember him saying that when he was uh, talking to Shulk about uh, like he was saying how he would want Shulk to be with Fiora over Ryan because Ryan was too much like him when he was younger. Yep. <laughs> oh, also, tidbit about Dunban. Um, this year is the lunar year of the boar, and I think in Japanese, uh, instead of the beast, Dunban is called the boar. So there's a lot of uh, fan art of Dunban uh, for the lunar new year this year because of that. Oh yeah, I think didn't Soria Saga That's draw cool. something or mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Uh I personally um, I can't... Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> All right. Um so when it comes to like I don't like to do a whole lot of shipping these days, but I think when I was first into like Xenoblade w- while I was playing it, I I liked Melia the most and I empathized with Thunderman the most, so I like to sort of like in my head pair them a little bit. Um, that was actually a very popular pairing yeah. at the time. And like uh, it's been sort of like counter argumented as pairing spares, which you know that's that's also a valid argument. But I also like I I, I like my pretty things. I like to have my pretty things, um, but. Um, I need to go back and watch the cutscenes before I talk more about this because um, I, I just want to make sure that uh, I'm not running off of old old feelings for this <laughs> as I progress back into this uh, into talking about this. Um, but I love Dunban, I love Melia. <laughs> and um, actually, one thing that Dunban does do for Melia again, this is in a heart to heart. In one of the heart to heart branches, I think this is the the good branch. Um, Dunban calls Melia out on her being very reserved. He he says that um, you only seem to truly be yourself when you're around Ricky and Shulk, and that he would he kind of wants to see her open up to the rest of them. Hmm. To which Melia says, "Like, yeah, you know what? You are right, and I appreciate you being blunt with me." And that she wants to open up more to everybody else. And I think that's uh, something interesting because it shows that Dunban, despite how blunt and how like rash he can be, he really does. He really can be kind of like a father figure to the whole team or like an older brother figure. Just like he he can watch everybody. He can watch over everyone and just be there for them. And I think that's kind of how Melia sees Dunban as just this protector this person that she can count on to protect her and not just protect her, but protect everybody else as well. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, gosh, this is why I really like the heart, them introducing heart to hearts. Cause you have characters that sometimes you won't have much screen time at all together. We'll just be, be exactly. able to develop relationships with them because you never could see like, uh, say Jen and like, Ziggy, like having a heart to heart conversation like that. Right. And the messed up part with uh, 
XC1 is that not only are there heart to hearts, there's multiple branches within that heart to heart. So, you know, we could all, we could all play this heart to heart and then we can get a completely different story out of it. Yeah. Like, yeah, some of them are wildly different. Oh, yeah. But I think it shows um, a lot of different sides to the characters. Mm-hmm. And I know one thing that people, a lot of like people who are big fans of Saga, they kind of look at Xenoblade 1 characters and they think, oh, they're boring because they're kind of just one-dimensional, which I don't particularly mm-hmm. agree with. I think there's a lot there's a lot of different layers to them. It's not quite as in-your-face as it was in Saga, Granted, but I think it is definitely, it's definitely still there. Just unfortunately, you might have to do a little bit more work to actually see it. Yeah. If I, uh, like, if for some reason Saga would be remade and they did heart to hearts within, like, the the characters, I would die and go to heaven. Oh my god, yes. Oh, absolutely. I would love that too. Heart to hearts, Zenosaga characters. Oh my. This is giving me some wonderful material. Um, yeah, that's one thing that uh, Saga is definitely missing is like some sort of skit system, like entails or the heart to hearts. Or even if they did that for Sinnoh Gears, that would be great as well, since Sinnoh Gears was very yeah. unbalanced when it comes to character interactions. Incredibly. Okay. Yeah, I think that's kind of um, Melia. I think we covered the whole cast yeah. of Melia, or at least the whole main playable cast. Yeah. I mean, hmm. I mean, is there anything? You know, what else can think of they can add to discussing? Like, did anybody really like play as her that much? Oh yes, yes, yes. I did. I did. I did a bit. I used to mean her. I was terrible with her. <laughs> I was first at. Uh, I was at first as well. Uh, but when I started looking into FAQs to use her, she became my favorite character. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I even named my Final Fantasy uh, 14 character uh, her last name. My character's name is uh, Kirill Antiqua. And um, I really like it a lot because um, he's a black mage, and the, the graphics for the black mage uh, sort of resemble Melia's little, like, uh, pips that sort of follow her around as she, uh, as she casts things. Ah. The more you know. <laughs> yeah, her playstyle is, is really cool because it's like a nuke playstyle. So you have all these different elements and then you're summoning them and just readying yourself to launch a huge attack. Because each time you use an element, it grants, uh, I believe, the whole party a certain buff. And you have another skill, which is, I think, the copy element. So you can essentially have like two... Two of one element, and then you have one more that's like an extra buff for the party. And you want to like have them up and time it so that you can recharge, so that like you can attack in sync with your recharge or your cooldown rather. And it makes for a really interesting um, gameplay mechanic with her. It also helps that she can self topple, which is lovely. Oh, that's, that's awesome. I love it when a character can do that. I love it when they put like a super badass skill on like a really dainty character. <laughs> oh, like like Momo yes. in episode three. Yes. <laughs> uh, not th- wait when they what? Oh, and uh, then episode three with Bobo. The what's that attack called? Um, 
they give her choke like Ziggy? Or am I misremembering? That, that was the punch. That that very powerful punch that she does, or <sighs> oh, okay, is it whatever break? Is it a break attack? It's it's a her t- it's just a tech attack. Um, <sighs> sword sword swordfish. Oh, okay, okay is it swordfish or no no? <sighs> that's what is, that's one of I think Cosmos's attacks. I don't remember. I have I have almost like a photographic memory, but I do remember in Xenosago two. Momo is the most overpowered character in the world, which I she just, was really I strong. Love, like I love the combat in in Xenosaga too, and um and and she was just like her her attacks were just god. Um, but um, the thing I like I like about like Melia is like like I mean we've kind of mentioned it 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 it. It makes you play in like a completely different, different way. Um, mm-hmm. She's very unique, um, and you know, and that and that kind of goes twofold too. It kind of speaks to her, like her character. You know, she's one of the best characters in the game. She's a really unique character. You know, it's only fitting that she has a um, a unique playset to match. Um, but. Um, yeah, I remember when I first started trying to play as her, I had no idea what I was doing, and I was just pressing buttons, and that was interesting. But, um, but yeah, it's it's a it's 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 cool when when um when developers give you you know something completely different in terms of the combat for a certain character to try and master. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, what I really like about Xenoblade 1, um, this might be me looking too deep into it, but one thing I really like about Xenoblade 1's combat is that I felt like some of the characters, their fighting style really represented them. Yeah. Uh, Like, I liked how um, Dunban has the Blossom Dance, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which is really cool. And Amelia has her, her style, which is just completely weird and different and just unique. And also like that Shulk has his style too, which I would argue is actually part of his character development. But actually, you know what? Maybe yeah. maybe if we do a Shulk episode, I'll save it for that. Yeah. I have a lot to say about him. But like I, I yeah, like it's... how um Melia is um like she is the glass cannon herself. Like she's extremely powerful, uh-huh. mm-hmm. but she can be hit very easily if she doesn't take care of herself. Yeah, and Ryan's attacks fit him kind of perfectly as well. <laughs> Being, you know, such like head on. Um, yeah, he could take a know, lot. Of, he takes a lot of aggro, lot of and he's your basically your tank. That's the way I would I would play. He was uh, he was the easiest character for me to get to like um, to reach a HP <laughs> cap with. Oh I yeah, think. same. I'm I maxed it out. Yeah, uh, actually, um, did did any of you ever see the uh, the hidden scene with Melia and Shulk? Like after when Shulk is unconscious, and he's in the um, the uh, Machina village. I don't recall that. No, I I've, I've read about it, but I can't remember. I think I think I may have. I think I may have seen it. it so basically. Um, she 
she wants she goes to check on in on Shulk and you can trigger like a whole set of like dialogues with just Melia talking to herself. And it's really like it's kind of heartbreaking because she's she's basically confessing her feelings to Shulk and going on about how, you know, Shulk is the reason why she was able to do what she does and how he kept her strong. Yes. And yeah, actually, it was the I most tragic. It was for me. I I remember watching that and going through that. And for me, like that was like as someone like who's a huge Melia fan, like that was just the most tragic scene in the game. Um, for me, one of them was just you know, um, I don't know. It was just yeah, and I think like it's supposed to be it was implied that touching. It's very touching. It's emotional. I think it's like implied that she wanted to like kiss him or something, but she kind of stops herself from doing it. And because she's just like, I, I don't know, I can't be this way towards him. And, and she, again, it just goes into how Melia, she can't, she can and can't control her emotions at times. And she, she's constantly at odds with herself. Like and isn't entirely sure how to put it. Yeah, because she's basically putting her well, trying to put her feelings aside, and then going and kissing Shulk would probably not help with that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but yeah, that's that seems really um really really heartbreaking. <laughs> And I think it's like that scene, and there's one more scene that really hit home, was the one where she speaks to Fiora, and then Fiora walks away, and then Melia, yet again, tilts her head downwards, and says, I'm nothing like, I'm nothing compared uh, to her. Melia, let me hug yeah. you. You're your own person, Melia. Don't like worry about comparing yourself to others. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Like it also goes to show you, it, even if you're the empress of the known fucking world, all it takes is somebody like not not reciprocating your love to, to make you sad. <laughs> and I think that's it makes Melia very human. Mm-hmm. Very human. Uh, that's something that like I. I can relate to that, um, you know, the unrequited love. I can relate to that from personal experience. I'm sure a lot of us can as well. It's a very natural thing. A lot of people go through that at some point in their Uh life. And I think that's like, that's just something that just felt so real about her and the way it's executed. I think that's probably the, the biggest thing that makes it great is the way it's executed. You see it in cutscenes. You see it in side cutscenes. The way she acts, the way she, the the words she says, it like you can really sense the kind of conflicts that she's going through, but still trying her best to keep to put on a a confident face to protect the ones that she does care about. So all in all, she's an admirable yes. character. I think that's the best way to put yeah. it. Yeah, she's um. Definitely one of the strongest characters of Xenoblade Chronicles 1. I have 
had trouble thinking of anybody that I know who doesn't like Melia. Like, even people I know don't like Xenoblade 1 like Melia. (laughs) (laughs) I actually, I just unlocked her, um, her, her spirit in Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. Nice. I think I found her on the, um, I found her on, like, the spirit board, and I was like, oh, snap, I need to get this, and made sure to do that, because you have, like, five minutes, and then it switches to a different card. I need... But, um, you know, um, did anybody um, play as, or uh, use Melia in their party for the final boss fight? No, I don't remember. Uh, yeah. So... I wanted to, but yeah. the reason I didn't was because I thought it would just be, it would fit better if my party was Shulk, Ryan, and Fiora. I, you know what, I was, I was gonna say the same thing. I, yeah. I can't remember you know, who was in my party, but I know Charlotte probably was because I I love sh- having Charlotte's yeah. healing abilities. Like. Because I need, I need to have, I need to have Ryan as like my tank, and I had his his HP. I always saw my first playthrough. God, this was six years ago when I beat it because I played it and took a break, and then picked it up again and really got into it. And I was like, okay, I'm finishing this game. Um, and you know, it took me like almost a hundred hours on the initial playthrough. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's what it's been for me on all three of the Xenoblade Xenoblade games. Um, yeah, been about a hundred hours for the initial when I initially. Beat, yeah, beat so like each game is a one hundred um, hours minimum. The main quest, yeah, um, m- minimum. Yeah, that's that's key <laughs> yeah, word. that's very yeah. key. I, I don't have them in front of me, but my logs are. I, I've probably spent three hundred hours on, on, on the original. I think I have four hundred clocked on my X save file, uh, and I have uh, about. It, my switch says three hundred and sixty hours played, but I'm at two sixty for Xenoblade Two. So I probably put in a thousand hours and. Xenoblade. It's definitely, definitely worth um, worth it. But with with the final battle, having Fiora, um, Ryan, and Shulk, um, with having Fiora and Shulk, there's like part of the cutscene where you know their eyes are kind of glowing, and that's ripped straight from Xenoblade Three. Uh, but um, yeah, that was just like I know it's Melia it's about Melia but um that scene was like so like hit me so strongly that I was like I really want to have Melia in my party but um but I kind of I need to have Fiora <laughs> yeah okay um I, I, yeah, I remember uh, it made sense to just have Fiora in that final fight for sure. Yeah, and then Ryan was more out of, I mean, strategy. Um, mm-hmm. Wise, not really character wise. I'd gone with Ryan for the entire, for most of the game. Um, 
Uh, I have to um, start packing up, guys. Oh. Uh, I'm going to end my audio, but you guys can go ahead uh, if you have more to say. Um, sure. Thanks for letting me on again. Um, oh, no Marianne problem. Is best. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, there's probably one more thing I want to bring up real quick about Melia, and that's that um, her voice actress. Oh. Like, first of all, oh. she did a fantastic job. Oh. Second of all, have any of you watched Doctor Who? Because uh, I believe her name is Jenna Coleman, and then she did Clara in the Doctor Who series. Wait, I haven't seen Clara. Clara was a voice actress for Mel for the yep. English version yep. of Melia. Holy yeah. Shit. Now I need to. I've seen. I'm like, sorry, the first couple but episodes. Clara, Clara is my f- is my favorite Doctor Who companion, probably. That's ever. awesome. So, and that's what I wanted to hear. I wanted to know if somebody wow, like heard her in Doctor Who. <laughs> Two of my favorite fictional characters, same act, same actress, voice act, a voice actress, and as a voice actress, and. Okay, I'm going to cut my audio, and I will see you guys later. All right, bye. bye. Thanks again. Take care. You're welcome. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Yes, nice to meet you. Bye. Bye. Nice to meet you as well. All right. Well, I mean, this might be actually a good point to stop the episode. I mean, I'm glad you brought up that uh, about Melia's voice actress, because I was thinking about bringing it up, too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Which, ah. Now I kind of I don't think we really talked about Xion's voice actress and Xion. I played I played I I played the game in Japanese. I didn't play it. Uh, anymore, so I haven't actually heard the I haven't really uh, I was going to get the new Nintendo mm-hmm. 3DS version of it's like Xenoblade 3D just to have it for my 3DS too, but I I never got around to getting it and now if you want to get it it's like I mean, they don't manufacture it anymore, so the, to get a physical copy of it, it's a one copy of Xeno. Uh, well, I don't have Xeno Gears, a physical copy of Gears, but it's the only one that I don't have from the Xenoblade, because I have a special edition of both 2 and X, and then um, yeah, that, a physical copy of the first. Yeah, they're... Yeah, the original Xenoblade has uh, fantastic English voice acting, and re- rewatching the cutscenes really reinforced yes. that. Yes, and it was crazy. I was I was rewatching these scenes. I'm like, my goodness, I love this game. <laughs> um, the voices are so good, and the delivery is just surprisingly well done. Nintendo of Europe really showed Nintendo of America how it's how it's done in terms of voice acting for vocalization. Um, but yeah, I definitely recommend checking out the English dub for Xenoblade. Um, I think it's yeah. one of the better ones uh-huh. out there. A lot of people are purists oh, yes. stick with the Japanese. I, but I think a Xenoblade one, and actually I'd also say for two as well, I actually preferred the English dub for both of them. Really? Mm-hmm. See, I, I know some Japanese, so that's why I've, like I usually, my default goes to Japanese because yeah I do I do too and uh, but, um but I I'll, I'll probably do, I've I've been itching to do like to do a, a new playthrough of Xenoblade One so I might this time go with the English voice acting as opposed to yeah definitely give it definitely give it a shot I for a new playthrough mm-hmm. all right so I think yeah this 
we'll just wrap the episode up here since Kat left. Um, so, but at the end of the episode, we kind of go around and if there's anything we want to plug or anything, we can do that. Um, so, well, Kat left, but um, she is uh, a really great artist. Um, I've known her since, uh, ooh, I've known her for probably over a decade now because um, we went to the same Zeno forums. Uh, she runs the uh, Zeno forum, uh, Zeno Underground. So if anybody wanted to ever check out Zeno Underground, uh, it has a bunch of artwork um, and uh, projects uh, containing Zen- various Zeno games. Uh, I would highly recommend that. Um, Justin, is there anything you'd like to plug? You know what? This is like the first time where I don't have a whole lot to plug. <laughs> <laughs> I think like if I had to say something, I am working on a couple reviews uh-huh. slash impressions, but that's really about it. Um, you can check out the site I write for at operationrainfall.com, but otherwise, yeah, I don't really have much. Okay. Uh, Morgan, I know you uh, run your own okay. outlet. Yeah. Um, I run, uh, VG Culture HQ uh, dot com. It's called VG Culture HQ, and right now I'm actually working on the um, the. I just got a review copy for Steins Gate Elite, which is um, pretty awesome. So I'll probably have a review up of that by the end of the week, and I think I'm going to start by tomorrow. Have a piece on. Um, just like an initial impressions and um, I might have some I've been thinking of some Zeno editorials to do so um, I'll look out for that and you can find me on Twitter I'm um, Guy W.A. Zelda Tattoo so at Guy I have pre I've it's abbreviated for guy with the Zelda tattoo because I have a legend of Zelda tattoo. Oh my gosh. And I want to get as, I want to get a Zohar tattoo on my forearm. Um, so maybe I'll be guy with the Zeno tattoo. Next. <laughs> yes. Join the club. Yeah. Cause me and, uh, cause I work uh, with RPG fan and I know someone else there that also has a, a Zohar tattoo. So we're like club Zohar. Uh, <laughs> oh, I met, I met someone with RPG fan, I think at anime expo, I think. Um, so yeah, I got, well, I guess, um, I, yeah, I work at, with RPG fan. I write news articles, which I tend to hog all the Xenoblade ones that come up, but unless someone wrestles it away from me. (laughs) Um, but, um, I feel like I was going to say something else, but I can't remember. Oh, yeah, I'm at Cosmos Chaos uh, on Twitter. Um, oh, and yeah, speaking of Twitter, I don't think I mentioned it in the last episode, but uh, Zenochat does have a Twitter account. Um, it's at Z-E-N-O underscore chat. So I, I couldn't get Zeno with a, an X, so I went the next best route. Um, so yeah, Always check there for like when we announce new episodes or 
I re- I have a poll up at the moment as this current probably be old news by the time this episode goes live, but um, kind of asking what people might want us to do for the next episode. So vote if you haven't. Um, but yeah, that's it. Uh, f- uh, our discussion on Melia. Thank you very much for joining me today. I really appreciate the discussion. It's really good. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a good time. I'm glad you enjoyed it, and hopefully you'll be on again. Yeah, I'd 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 I'd, I'd be uh I'd be humble to be to be back. So all right, you. all right. Well, you guys, um, uh, thanks for listening, and have a good night. Take care, everyone. <laughs>